Hello and welcome to episode number four of the Stories About Autism podcast. My name's James and I'm the dad to two boys who are both autistic and I write a blog, Stories About Autism. Each week on the podcast, I get to speak to someone who has their own story about autism they want to tell. I'll be talking to parents of children with autism, autistic adults and people who work with the autism community. This week, I'm lucky enough to be speaking to someone who ticks all three boxes. That's Ella from the blog Purple Ella. Ella's the parent to two children with an autism diagnosis. She's autistic herself, and she also gets to work with other members of the autism community through her public speaking and the training that she does. I first met Ella a couple of years ago, so it was really good to catch up with her and get to know more about her story. And I'm sure you guys are going to find it really interesting too. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two things you could do for me. Number one, send me some feedback. I'd love to know what you guys think. So anywhere on Facebook, on my Facebook page or Instagram, send me a message, leave me a comment. Maybe there's someone who you think would make a really good guest. Maybe there's a question that you'd love me to start asking people. But anyway, I'd love to get your feedback. And if you listen to it on iTunes, please, 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 could you leave me a review there? It really helps more people find the podcast. Anyway, let's get started. Whether you're a parent or family member of someone with autism or you're autistic yourself, I really think you're going to get a lot of value out of today's episode. Ella describes really well what autism, anxiety and meltdowns means to her life and talks about some of the strategies that she's learned over the years to help her cope and live a happier life. So some really great insight from today's episode. Here she is, Purple Ella. Okay, Ella, hello. Hello, James. How are you? I'm really good, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. Good, good. So it's been a long time since we last spoke. Yeah, I was trying to work out when it was that I met you. I'm going to go with three years ago, maybe? I think it's getting close to that. I think it was, uh, yeah, it was about two, two and a half years ago. Yeah, okay. So I had just received my autism diagnosis, hadn't I, I think, in the July, and I think I met you in the September and so much has happened since then that it feels like about a decade ago to be honest. Yeah so just to fill everyone in I'd gone to a parent blogging event I'd not long started blogging myself um, I was one of probably three men out of about 300 people there. It was a mum's net yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd been there about five minutes was checking my coat in and I think uh, you get a name badge at these things. So my name badge had stories about autism on. And I think you were behind me or in front of me in the queue. Yeah. And you just turned around and said, oh, stories about autism. I'm Ella. I've just been diagnosed as autistic. Straight in there. <laughs> <laughs> but I think one of the wonderful people about, wonderful things about autistic people is how direct we are. So I'm going to own that. Yeah, that, that's it. There's no, no shyness, no... Uh, no worries about saying hello you just came out and yeah and we started talking from there didn't we yeah I mean I was just I'd just been diagnosed and I'd been blogging for about I don't know four or five years prior to that Mm. just as a kind of mummy blogger and was looking to send my work in more of a direction of kind of working with autistic and helping autistic people so I guess I just latched on to the first (laughs) (laughs) that's what you're doing great brilliant so how are you doing that um yeah, and also with it being a big, busy event, I was probably quite anxious anyway, so not. Yeah, that's, and it was good. I remember we, we sort of spent the day together and uh, 
yeah, as you said, it was a really busy event and, and I think you did really well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And then I think we went, was there some kind of a, I remember drinking Prosecco. Yeah. <laughs> there was a little, little <laughs> event afterwards. Yeah. Definitely. There was a little thing afterwards, wasn't there? Yeah. No, it was good to meet you. And Perfect. it's been brilliant to watch how, you know, stories about autism have grown since that point. You've done really well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So do you want to, um, that, that's our little <laughs> intro to how we know each other. Do you want to let everyone else know just a little bit more about you? And Yeah. So I am uh, known on the internet as Purple Ella because I am an inimitable lover of purple. And I uh, was diagnosed uh, as autistic in, now I keep forgetting actually what year it was, but I'm going to go with 2015. So really quite relatively quite recently after my son received his uh, autism diagnosis and kind of that experience showing me that I was also autistic um, and what I do is blogging YouTube videos public speaking training consultancy just basically autism advocacy in whatever way that I can to help other autistic people like kind of experience the journey a bit more gently I suppose if you like yeah and I think that's really interesting that there seems to be so many people I speak to who get diagnosed because their son or their daughter's been diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, yeah, because basically what happened was my son was diagnosed because the school, his school had spotted that he had some traits. So we went through the diagnostic process with him and he was diagnosed. And I had got a um, mental health diagnosis, but it never really fit and nothing they'd really done to treat that had really helped. So. One day, about three months after my son's diagnosis, we were driving somewhere, me and my son, um, to have like food in a cafe or something. And I'd got in mind a particular parking spot. And when I got there, the parking spot was gone. And not only was the parking spot gone, but they had made the whole area residence parking only. And I could not think because obviously now I realized because of that sort of difficulty, executive functioning and, and imagination difficulty, I could not imagine what I was going to do instead. So I had a meltdown and I looked at my son in the back of the car and in that moment I kind of knew that I was autistic. It was really weird from never having considered that at all to go, oh, okay, that's what it is. Yeah. At home, sort of spoke to my uh, husband, Mr. Purple, and was like, oh, thinking he's going to go, you're, you know, what? And he's like, oh, it's not actually that crazy. I think you should go to the GP and spoke to loads of my friends and some of my friends actually said to me, what? One of my closest friends said to me, what, you didn't realise? I thought you knew that. <laughs> so they known that I was autistic before it had even occurred to me. So, yeah. So then um, I don't really know. Did I start this story with a purpose in mind? I do tend to ramble. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Well, I, I was sort of saying that uh, lots of people get diagnosed after their, their child's been diagnosed, which, which, as you said, sort of happened to you. So what was the process like? like how, how long did it take? What did you have to do? Well, I was quite fortunate, and I should say that right now because I'm aware that the waiting time for an adult autism diagnosis at this time is somewhere around two years from visiting your GP to get potentially getting that diagnosis. So I know that I was incredibly lucky. I went along to my GP, and I had I had done, you know, as only an autistic person would, an insane amount of research in the week between realizing that I was autistic and going to see the GP. So I went with a list of female um, autism traits and why I thought that I was on the spectrum and luckily got a sympathetic GP who referred me straight away to the adult autism services. A couple of months later, 
I got a letter saying, you are now on the waiting list. We will contact you at some point in the future when you reach the top of the waiting list. Here are some mental health charities that can help you out in the meantime. And I completely freaked out because for an autistic person to be told at some point you will receive a letter with this incredibly important information, but we're not going to tell you when that is. Yeah. You can imagine it's not ideal. So I rang them up and uh, told them that, told them that basically what they had done to me was put me in a position where every day the arrival of the mail would be anticipated, would be an event, you know, would be stressful. Mm. And that I already used the, the mental health charities that they had suggested I contact and really was at the end of the road and they said and I said I don't care how far in the future the appointment is I don't care if it's a year from now but I want to have the date in my diary is there any way you can do that so they said there was one guy who would do that and we were able to schedule an appointment and actually from seeing the GP to that diagnostic appointment was only about four months for me which I think is really really fortunate and I don't think that's indicative at all of the current situation with waiting for these diagnoses no it, it doesn't sound like it is at the moment from, from speaking to other people but that's I've, I've never thought of it like that like you said that just that fact of not knowing when the date is going to be could be such a, a challenge for you yeah really and I think maybe the fact that I'd said that they're like okay <laughs> right maybe yeah I don't know but it, I feel really blessed that it happened that way mm. because I found that really stressful so how did you feel after you received the diagnosis? I thought I was going to feel elated that I'd finally found after a 20-year search for why on earth was I different, the answer. But actually, I felt bereaved. I felt, and I was really surprised by that because I thought I'd accepted my challenges. But I felt like I'd been given this news that meant that this thing that I'd had all my life that I could have potentially been helped with, that I could have potentially you know, achieve better academically, yeah. got to career, had, I'd lost that in that moment. Because prior to getting the diagnosis, I suppose I did just thought the way I was was inevitable. But once I'd got the diagnosis, I grieved the sort of lost 36 years of not having the support that I needed. And I also grieved the fact that this was a permanent neurological condition that wasn't going to go away, that was always going to be there. Yeah. And I had to wrap my head around that and find a way of being okay with that and moving forward with that and that probably took me a full year full year well I mean I, I, I can imagine just trying to put myself in that situation thinking this, the same sort of thing you know you've waited all this time to to be told why you feel so different and all this time you could have been doing things to make your life a, a bit easier yeah exactly so yeah that was difficult and also it's quite a big thing to be diagnosed with something like autism it's a big label to carry isn't it yeah um so it's natural and also because i have um alexithymia and for anyone that doesn't know what alexithymia is it's a subclinical inability to recognize emotions uh so i struggle to know how i feel so the complication of that whilst trying to process the diagnosis anytime i have to process anything it's probably takes me twice as long and is harder because I've got to first recognize how I actually feel and that can take me quite a while. That sounds, that sounds incredibly difficult. <laughs> yeah. So how would you say, it's around three years ago you've had your diagnosis now, how would you say life has changed in that time for you? Life has changed really, really massively for me. Uh, to start with, I guess I've found a bit of a calling and a career with the work that I do through Purple Ella. And 
secondly, I've been able to learn and implement strategies that help me manage my life on a day-to-day level and reduce my anxiety and live my life in a more happy place, be a better mother and a better wife and a better Ella, really. So just having the right strategies for the job is not perfect, but it definitely makes a big difference. And I think actually what I've realized is that the goal for people uh, on the autistic spectrum is to reduce anxiety and raise self-esteem and that those two things are the single most important things so having strategies to do both those things means that I'm better regulated yeah in in my own experience when uh, I'd say for the last two years Jude has made sort of huge strides forward because his anxiety has been so much more in control you know you're you're able to function (laughs) you're able to sort of understand the world around you a bit more and yeah just be in a happier place you're not constantly in flight or fight, which is mm. a bit of a loop we can end up getting into. And I see it in my own because I've got, um, I don't think I mentioned, I've also got a daughter who is autistic yeah. <laughs> and was diagnosed about a year ago. Uh, so I've got two children who are on the spectrum. And yeah, when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm helping them, mostly what I'm doing is boosting the self-esteem so that they're more resilient, so that they can cope with the challenges of life, so that their anxiety is reduced and they can function. So it sounds like... Boosting self-esteem is is sort of essential to to how you parent and to how you you know sort of manage your own autism. Yeah, because I think that I think that for autistic people more, our self-esteem is like a leaky bucket. You know, you can keep filling it, but it's also it also keeps leaking out. So it's more of an an ongoing job that yeah. I do for them at this time while they're children, but that I hope that I'm teaching them so that when they are older, they can maintain their own leaky self-esteem bucket. If you <laughs> <laughs> so what what would you say to anyone who at the moment is sort of sitting on the fence about maybe uh trying to be diagnosed themselves and going down that route because i know for a lot of people um they can almost feel like it's not going to make a difference or maybe they're scared or you know in, in, embarrassed even that that they they might get this diagnosis um well i'd first of all say get off the fence it's uncomfortable and there are ants <laughs> um well it is entirely a personal decision I think that I would address the what is the point that a lot of more mature people have of like well I'm not in education I don't necessarily need to be supported in that way so why would I get a diagnosis and I would say that you the more that anyone can know about themselves the better they understand themselves the happier they will be And being autistic is such a fundamental part of who I am that knowing that is vital to understand myself. So just on that alone, putting to one side what I'll talk about, you know, to do with other kinds of support, having that understanding and that self-knowledge makes getting the diagnosis worth it. Before you even get into the fact that there are things, practical ways in which having the diagnosis might be useful, for example, accommodations at work or... relationships with a spouse I know that my relationship with Mr Purple has been massively improved through our knowledge of my autism relationships with anyone really you know I think just that self-knowledge and that explanation for people who know you who might just be able to be more understanding if they understand that you're autistic makes makes the diagnosis worthwhile on your blog I'd say that you're very very honest uh, about what life's like and you're talking there about 
learning more about yourself and, and knowing how to cope with different things. And you talk a lot about some of the struggles that you have on a daily basis. Like, And you mentioned earlier before about uh, the meltdown you had in the car, for instance. Mm-hmm. What Could you describe to people, like, because a, a meltdown is something that <laughs> I think is really important that people understand, um, especially uh, when it seems to happen in autistic children. People often put it down to bad behaviour or tantrums. Um, yeah. So if, could you maybe Handle. describe to people like how a meltdown feels to you? Yeah, I can. Well, I can do my best. Yeah. So I've had meltdowns all my life, less and less now that I'm now that I'm more on top of my own anxiety. But basically, the first thing that I would say about a meltdown is that it feels like it's about the thing that triggered the meltdown. But it isn't about that thing. Okay. It's about a build up of things that have happened through the course of the day. You know, a missed appointment, somebody being late, a, a lost parking space, not being able to pick up what you want in the supermarket, a drip, drip, drip of problems that happen that eventually become too much to process. And then a meltdown happens. Yes. And in my case, what that looks like is whatever the trigger has been becomes the worst thing in the entire world. And then that progresses into everything in my life being completely wrong and terrible. And in my head, that's how I genuinely feel. And I can be quite sort of ranty where I'm just sort of repeating like, and this is wrong and that is wrong and just getting really, really into a negative cycle. And then this is where things get a bit fuzzy because I don't have clear memories of my meltdowns. Um, but then it, and this is also quite embarrassing, but it can progress into sort of shouting, throwing things, cry, uncontrollable crying, lying on the floor, all the kind of classic stuff that you see children do, but not so much adults because we've learned to do it privately. Mm. Um, and I think prior to my diagnosis, I just thought I was a terrible human being who didn't seem to be able to control myself. But now that I know that these are meltdowns, I think. I think that I guess what I'm trying to say is for the child or for the adult, the shame of not not understanding that you can't help this thing happening kind of makes it worse. Yeah, you're left after the meltdown with this hangover of shame and embarrassment because you might have done it somewhere public. I have had meltdowns in dental surgeries, cafes. I've had a meltdown in the head teacher's office at my children's school. You know, really public, embarrassing meltdowns. So that can leave you feeling pretty bad about yourself, as you can imagine. That's really interesting to to hear you talk about it that way and, and sort of how you're left feeling after it, it's happened. So, yeah, so I think so when I'm dealing with an autistic child who is in meltdown, I kind of I kind of think to my own experience, and it is that if someone starts talking to me or adding more for me to process, it's just going to make me spiral more. Yeah. And so the, the best reaction is always just silent support to be honest. And so I try and apply that with the children. And then there's a point where you kind of recognize that that, that the meltdown's gone, but the person might need something from you. And then if that, if I can be made to feel safe and relaxed and like I haven't done anything wrong and be given a few hours to really kind of regulate myself, then that that is optimum. Because if that doesn't happen, then I'm going to have another meltdown a day later. Or, you know, you can get into a cycle. Of, have you noticed that with your children? Have it a particularly bad week just being meltdown after meltdown? Yeah, and I'd say for for Tommy, it 
it maybe you can go on for a, a few hours during the day and, and maybe makes that whole day bad. For Jude in the past, it used to be weeks and weeks. Um, it would just be meltdown after meltdown after meltdown. And now, knowing more that I know and, and knowing them so much better, it generally yeah is much shorter when it happens. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we've achieved here too. It's not that the meltdowns don't happen, but now we know how to manage them better there. I used to have the same thing. I'd have like a three-week meltdown period. Mm. That doesn't really happen anymore. So what what would you say works for you? I know you mentioned a couple of things there about like not talking and uh, like what what would you if you was having a meltdown? How how would I help you? Uh, get me somewhere out of public eye. Yeah. So just basically take charge, but in a in with as few words as possible. Like let's go to this quiet place. Go there. Don't say anything until uh, I, I'm ready for you to say anything. And then um, preferably give that child or that person some space to go and cuddle up un- under the blanket and watch Netflix or play Minecraft or build Lego or whatever it is that they yeah. need to do or stim or whatever it is that they need to do to get themselves back to a, a place of feeling regulated and able to face the world again. And how, how do you reduce maybe the frequency of the meltdowns or the, the likelihood of them happening. Well, that's definitely going back to the whole kind of keeping the anxiety reduced to start off with. So making sure that my life is lived in such a way that I have, you know, I have a very clear daily routine that I follow. I do, I live in a very predictable way. We eat the same meals. On the, this is going to make me sound really uptight, but we eat. <laughs> On the same days, you know, we plan our summer really far in advance. Everything is very controlled and organized so that the things that you can't control might be manageable if everything else is kept calm and manageable. So it's about living a life that is keeping the anxiety down so that you can add a little bit of extra anxiety and it's not going to push to meltdown point. Does that make sense? Or do yeah, you know? it totally makes sense. I, I mean, from speaking to lots of different people routine seems to be really important for, for autistic uh, individuals how how did you discover that like, how did you discover what works for you well i like before i ha- i was diagnosed i would have assumed that autistic people just automatically made a routine and that that's what they did i just thought that autistic people and routines went hand in hand and maybe they even came with a routine when they were born um i'm joking i didn't realize that actually what people don't realize is that we find making routines really difficult because of poor executive functioning. So we can end up just kind of not knowing what we're doing or what's happening or what we should be doing or getting through our to-do lists or whatever, which is really terrible and a horrible way to live for us. So once I realized that actually the fact that I wasn't able to stick to a routine didn't mean that it wouldn't be good for me, I kind of diligently sat down and wrote out a daily routine and I put in, you know, meal times and structured my morning before I have to take the children to school and you know structured the end of the day where I have to do homework and dinner and all that kind of stuff and and just made myself work from that routine for a couple of weeks and that actually made me feel amazing really calm I knew what was happening I knew where I was I you know the world became more predictable which is what it's all about and I've actually moved on from that point to working with a company called Brain in Hand who make an app which basically has your daily routine so when you turn it on you see your daily routine it also allows you to put strategies within that routine so let's say you've got 
uh, a child who catches buses and might come into trouble when they're catching buses to school, they can then go into that bus entry and there'll be strategies for what to do if they miss the bus or, you know, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So that is where my routine lives now at the moment. And if ever I'm feeling anxious, one of the first first things that I'll do is look at my routine and remind myself what I'm doing and what's happening next. And that makes me feel much calmer. Yeah, it sounds really clever. Yeah, to add to that, I suppose really what I did was looked at what seems to help autistic people and just kind of tried tried loads of it and saw, and saw what worked for me. So, yeah, you live your life by routines now and, and you've, you've found what works for you. I think that's the really important sort of takeaway from that is is finding what works for you or for your child and going with that. Yeah, we are all different, you know, just like people are all different. I always like to say, you know, autistic people are people and people aren't all the same as each other. Um, But I think there are some general kind of common ground. So there are some strategies out there that it's worth, yeah, giving a try really. And I suppose, yeah, what I do basically now is (laughs) I, I like to say I've tried the strategies to find the good ones and then sort of share those with the community and hope that some of them might be useful for other people too. Yeah, that's it. It's it's not going to work for everybody, but you know, if, if it can help some people and some families, then you know, you're just sharing your own experiences. Yeah, although I've not met an autistic person yet who doesn't like a routine. So if you're <laughs> do let me know. <laughs> I've seen on, on some of your, your posts as well, you talk a lot about sensory processing. Mm-hmm. Could you explain that to, to people who maybe don't know what that is? Okay, yeah. So sensory processing uh, issues were a mystery to me when my son was first diagnosed. And we were, um, as I'm sure you had the same experience, James, when you said, get sent to the occupational therapist and they start bouncing them on balls and yeah. putting them. <laughs> what is this? But it's also an awareness of sensory processing incredibly helpful. So basically, children with sensory processing difficulties of which most autistic people will have, are either under-stimulated by things or over-stimulated by things, or both at different points. And that can be a changing picture as well. So you can have a child who's usually under-stimulated that then becomes over-stimulated. Yeah. So the behaviours that you'll see in under-stimulated children are kind of spinning around and running around and just basically trying to stimulate themselves so that they can reach the same regulation level as everybody else and be able to focus and be able to be productive. So that's what they tend to do. Overstimulated children are the ones that tend to be kind of like everything's too much, noise is too loud, and they try and hide under tables or get get away from it all. And everyone usually has some combination of difference areas in which they're over and under stimulated and so, and you can use sensory strategies to ad- to address those difficulties which can make you feel better regulated and that's something that I do a lot with my children because I see a profound difference in their behavior when I use those strategies sounds like a perfect exp- explanation <laughs> I've spoken about this at conferences <laughs> <laughs> so how does sensory processing generally present itself in your life for me personally, I am bothered by loud noises. I am bothered by two different noises that are different going on at the same time. I have a lot of issues around clothing, the feel of clothing. Um, I'm constantly pulling up my socks for some reason because socks are a nightmare. I have issues with food where food can taste fine one day and not the next and I can't eat it. 
because you can't plan what you're going to eat very easily. Yeah, that's that's kind of it really on my sensory stuff. Is there any strategies you use to sort of help cope with that? Because you you mentioned uh, like the the famous occupational therapist visits. Is there anything that you use? Yeah, I use. Um, I've always got really good quality ear plugs that after much experimentation feel comfortable that I carry with me that I use and they're a kind where you can still hear people talking that you're with okay. really good for cutting out background noise I usually have a fiddle toy or two in my bag um, so that if I'm struggling because one of the things that I struggle with is if I'm being given verbal information I can struggle to process that but I find that if I stim or if I use a, uh, a fiddle toy I can focus better yeah. Um, I use a weighted uh, like a lap weight thing it's like a big pillow filled with really heavy things that if I'm feeling a little bit overstimulated I kind of sit with it on and that makes me feel uh, much calmer um, my son has got this really cool thing that's like a big lycra green envelope that you climb into and yeah, gives I've you full yeah. proprioception um, sensory feeling And that's really effective for him. I would really recommend them, actually. That's been a really good one for him. Both the kids have got weighted blankets that they use at night. Um, And also with the children, I do, like, if they really need it, I'll do, like, a sensory break where I'll do, you know, squashing them like a sandwich and, you know, the kind of stuff that (laughs) teach you that seems weird but also seems to work. So I also think trampolines are absolutely brilliant for autistic children with sensory processing issues. Something about bouncing on a trampoline seems to sort them out quite effectively. Yeah, my my two are addicted to the trampoline. Uh, I run it constantly. Yeah, they're good, aren't they? Is there anything else that you use on a daily basis to... um, I mean, you mentioned you you have routines and you try and stick to... Like, How do you cope when, I don't know, when when you can't stick to those routines? I make a new routine. Okay. (laughs) So uh, that can look like anything from, so when we go on holiday, it's a family tradition that the first thing we do is stick up a piece of paper on the wall and make a routine for the holiday, (laughs) which sounds boring, but it's not, it's really, really cool. And um, also, if it's a little thing, like, so for, to give you an example, in the summer, my son, um, my eldest son, who is the one with the autism diagnosis, had a really, really serious ear infection where he was admitted to hospital to be put on IV antibiotics. So obviously our entire plan for the weekend was completely thrown out. It was a bank holiday weekend and we had this new situation. So I made a new routine around that. You know, I was sort of sat there thinking, right, okay, I'm going to eat at these times while we're in the hospital. And that gives me a foundation. So I guess I'm just constantly like, like a domino, you know, like dominoes being knocked, knocked over. I'm just constantly trying to keep one step ahead of myself and planning out the next four hours if things aren't, you know, within the normal routine. Does that does that make sense? Or Yeah, it yeah. makes a lot of sense. You've managed to adapt and learn that if you can sort of plan out the next four hours ahead, you can sort of reduce that anxiety a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, you have to be flexible. That's just the way the world is. But you can be flexible with a plan. And how does it work for your children? Do they adapt as easily or like how do you communicate that with them? Uh, uh, yeah, it depends. I mean, as you know, as a parent of, of autistic children, it depends on their mood and where they're at. Uh, they are very, very used to the routine and routines. And my even my middle boy, who isn't autistic, feels quite out of sorts if he, if he doesn't know what's happening. So 
they know. I think they know that if things don't go to plan, mom will come up with a new routine and it'll be okay. Yeah. And hopefully they'll kind of be learning through that to be able to do that for themselves as they get older. Yeah, of course. That'd be great. So one of the reasons I, I do this podcast and is to sort of try and show how different autism is for, for everybody. Um, I mean, you mentioned it yourself. There are similarities between you know, different autistic people, but people are people. We, we all have, have differences. How, how would you say autism is different for you and your children? Different to what? Uh, to other people's experience of autism. Or just, just different to, like, how their experience is different to your own experience. Like, okay, I see what you're saying. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's down to individual personality. So I would, say, I would say autism is, autistic traits are autistic traits, and each one of us has a collection of those traits that make up the, the kind of autism that we experience. And then underneath, that is our kind of basic personality which you know in my case is quite extroverted I think people are often quite surprised that there are extrovert autistic people I think yeah. everyone has this image that we're all massive introverts who don't like socializing and want to stay in the house on our own and that's absolutely not my experience I'm very sociable and I've got friends and I like being around people so I guess that's one way that I felt like my autism was different to the sort of stereotype mm. um my son is Kind of a little bit, he is the stereotype of autism in some ways in that he's a very uh, geeky child who likes to collect vast amounts of knowledge on particular topics, some of which are quite stereotypical, like history, and some of which aren't, like origami. Okay. So, yeah, but at the same time, he loves to dance and does ballet classes, which is less typical. Yeah. So I think basically what I'm saying in a roundabout way is that autism is autism, and obviously, because otherwise there wouldn't be a diagnosis and there wouldn't be a collection of traits. But underneath that, the way that that is experienced is dictated by someone's genetics, personality and life experiences. Yeah, of course, that, that's a, a really good way of explaining that. So I know uh, from your own experience, obviously, and from uh, reading some of your posts on your blog, that one of the things you're really passionate about is autism in girls. Yeah. And I guess why why so many girls go undiagnosed like yeah. i know it's i mean the statistics are, are very different in in boys and girls diagnosis and girls seem to get diagnosed much later than boys why is that yeah what what's your opinion on that well i think before we start any discussion around the topic of girl presentation autism if you will we need to say first that this is actually more just a differing presentation of autism and that you do boys and men that present in a more female autistic way and equally you get girls who present in a more traditional male autistic way okay because if we don't say that people who are trans for example find it quite difficult to talk about or people who are gender neutral quite find it quite difficult to talk about this topic so i'm just putting that in there we're basically talking about a presentation of autism um and that presentation of autism is the the kind of quieter, more anxious presentation of autism, if you like, you know, someone uh, someone who is masking their autism to try and fit in, you know, and that's typically female because social awareness and social demands on girls are greater than they are on boys, especially, you know, at school and, and teenage age. So the girls tend to find ways to mask their autism by either copying a friend or relying on a friend to help them do that or by finding a television character to imitate. 
um, so that their autism goes unnoticed because they are learning to act in a neurotypical way. But then what that kind of ends up with is, you know, mental health problems or difficulties later down the line because they haven't been supported properly. Some of the other common differences with autistic girls is that they tend to have more typical special interests than the boys. So then their interests might be, you know, ballet or My Little Pony or whatever it is that most little girls are into. But you have to look at their intensity and the focus of that interest. So, you know, they might, for example, I loved horse riding, which isn't so weird for a 12 year old girl. But despite having posters around my bedroom of horses, lots of magazines and a vast knowledge of horses, I had no desire to get on a horse. Oh, it was really? all just categorizing and uh, and collecting information for yeah. me. You know, they might play with dolls, but in a more kind of organizing them way rather than so it might look like, you know, this child is playing with a doll's house. But what they're actually doing is organizing or setting up scenes rather than taking part in imaginary play. Um, so yeah, so basically this child is, tends to be highly anxious, tends to be highly eager to please, really just wants to fit in. And, you know, commonly the kinds of issues you start seeing in later adolescence with these girls are things like eating disorders, depression and anxiety. So it's, so it's important that we recognize them sooner and support them better. Looking back, do you remember times like, does masking make sense to you now? Like, do you feel that you you were somebody who was masking when you was younger oh god yeah definitely I don't think I even really knew who I was until I got my diagnosis in some way I mean I I, I was I am quite a strong character so yes but I remember as a child watching musicals like Annie and the sound of music and seeing the children in that and trying to imitate them mm. I remember when I was at primary school we were visited by like and this seems a bit random but some Native American Indians or a Native <laughs> Indian tribe okay and in their tribe, they explained that the little girl didn't speak in public. It just wasn't the thing. They just didn't encourage it, so she didn't. Um, and I decided that if I didn't speak, that meant that I wouldn't be able to get into any trouble and that she'd got it sorted, this girl. So I tried <laughs> It didn't last very long. Yeah, so, yeah, I definitely remember finding people. Or, you know, the girl that I knew at swimming club who had perfect blonde hair that fell to her shoulders and was perfect in every way in my eyes. And I decided that if I owned the same bag as her and the same clothes as her and I had my hair done like her, then I would be perfect like her. So kind of, yeah, really trying to be someone else in order to be better. I mean, that, that sounds like quite a common behaviour anyway, I think, with... with especially in teenagers, um, yeah, maybe okay. boys and girls. That you... In my 30s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it is quite, a, yeah, you're right, it is quite a common way of dealing with things. But I think it's always when you're talking about masking and autism, it's more it's more deep than that. Yeah. It's not just being influenced by, it's, it's wanting to be exactly like. Mm. What would you recommend to, to maybe parents of girls and teenage girls who, you know, what, what would, what should they be looking out for? I mean, I guess any, I would say any any teenage girl who has significant anxiety or has traits of an eating disorder or who ha is having social difficulties. I'm not saying every teenage girl in that situation is autistic, but I think if you have a teenage daughter who has those um, difficulties, definitely read about female autism and see if you recognize anything in there. So that's the, that's the sort of girls that are already struggling. Yeah. Um, and then from there, 
either visit the school or the GP and ask for a referral for an assessment if you feel like that's something that needs to be pursued. For younger children, for younger girls, it's really difficult because unless you have a suspicion that your younger daughter might be autistic in the first place, you're not going to be informing yourself about those things or listening to this podcast, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Why would you say then that, that so many girls are, um, you know, if you look at the age range, you know, there seems to be, if, even if I look at uh, the school that, that Jude and Tommy go to, it's much more, uh, or there's much more boys there than, than girls. And Yeah, being autistic is a very male-oriented profession, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, why do I think that is? Because, because until, you know, I mean, Lorna Wing and Judith Gould were doing pioneering work in the 70s and 80s to do with identifying autistic girls but it's taken a long time for that message to trickle through and I think it is a massive topic in the media right now you know girls and how we present so I'm hopeful that that means that that things will change I think that the reason that we are in the current situation is because the girl typical girl presentation of autism isn't recognized as autism and now that we do recognize that hopefully things will change. And I'd also really like to mention, I was involved with last year, the National Autistic Society made a educational module about women and girls and, and autism that is intended for diagnosticians or parents or educators or anyone potentially working with autistic girls. That really is a very um, comprehensive guide to recognizing autistic girls. And there's some videos in there as well from autistic women who sharing their experiences and I was involved in the filming for that so I'm on the module and it's also completely free for a year so it's been sponsored by someone and I should probably know who but um <laughs> hair soap I want to say but I could just be completely making that <laughs> fake beans I don't know it's been sponsored by someone so all you've got to do is go onto the National Autistic Society website look under um training find the module sign up for it and you can do it free and it'll take you about an hour and a half is my guess that's great it sounds like a great resource for people yeah so rather than me sort of listing the things to look out for in autistic girls i would recommend anyone with a curiosity on this topic go and do that module so you mentioned that autism in girls is is definitely being spoken about a lot more and uh, obviously you you speak about it a lot from from your own experiences and one of the things i've I've been uh, thinking about is when i met you uh, two and a half years ago you seemed that day at least that uh, obviously there was a lot of people there and it was quite a busy social situation which I, I remember talking to you at different points in the day and you felt a little bit anxious and sort of were taking yourself away and, and sort of using the coping mechanisms that you used mm-hmm. um, and now I've seen that uh, you do public speaking and mm-hmm. you're you're doing all these events and things that uh, I guess are really pushing you outside your comfort zone so yeah. do, you, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, it surprised me as much as anyone that I would that I would do public speaking. But but basically, I was um, approached and asked to do some, so I did some. And actually, it's a really autism friendly job in many ways because part of the difficulty for an autistic person is reciprocal conversation. You know, mm. conversation with another person where you have to take an interest in them and they take an interest in you, and you know when to pause and when to stop and when to support. Public speaking is the opposite of that. I'm going to talk to you. You're going to listen to me. That's how it works. It's very clear. I'm going to tell you what I know on the topic that I love, which yeah. is very autistic, really, isn't it? That's so, a great from point, that, yeah. yeah. So, from that respect, the fact that I'm 
passionate about autism and have done a lot of research and have built up a wealth of knowledge means that I'm happy to go and share the information I found about my special interest with anyone that will listen, really. But the actual events themselves can be a challenge because, as you said, they're very busy. And, and obviously also because if I'm a speaker, then people are probably going to approach me even more so and, and want to chat to me. So what I do is make sure that I get plenty of breaks. Usually if it's an NAS event, there'll be a quiet room. But if not, I'll ask for a quiet room so that I can go off and get breaks when needed. And I make sure that I clear the week around the conference so that the days before and the days prior to it, I'm going to have lots of time at home on my own regulating myself. And my most recent discovery is I'm taking my own food to <laughs> sensory issues. And, you know, I'm gluten free and complicated food wise. So so that everything is really under my control. So that's how I manage it. And I, I love doing it because, yeah, it's people are responding really well. I'm quite surprised. I go and ramble on for 40 minutes and people seem to find that helpful. So for me, and also the other thing about it is that I found through, and I don't know whether you found this through the YouTube stuff and the, and the public speaking, is other people coming to me after I've spoken and saying, yes, me too. I really related to what you said is also beneficial to me because it's affirming for both of us that we aren't the only people who have had these experiences. So it's kind of therapeutic meeting other women who've been through what I've been through. Yeah, I bet it is. I I found the the blog for the last last two years that I've been doing it is is a really therapeutic process. Um, as much as uh, I do it to share our stories to try and help others, obviously you end up talking to other people and learning more yourself and, and talking to people who, who become friends and are in similar situations. So yeah, it's definitely it's it's a really therapeutic thing. So before uh, we get to a final question. Just wanted to make sure that everybody knows where to find you and, and your blog and all this great content you've been talking about. So do you want to just make sure everyone knows the, the best way to find you? Yeah. So basically, I am Purple Ella. That's, you know, purple as in the colour and E-double-L-A Ella everywhere. On Instagram, on Twitter is at Purple Ella. On Facebook, um, I have a page under Purple Ella. On YouTube, I have a channel under Purple Ella where I upload weekly videos about the kinds of experiences I have and the strategies that I use to deal with them and I also the other thing I do on that channel which I love is interview other autistic people about their experiences and I can be found on Google I have a blog that is also under Purple Ella so basically just type Purple Ella into Google and find me wherever you fancy following me or everywhere because you know then I could be in your life any time all day long <laughs> that's me and and I love hearing from people and I love the purple community as I call the community that I'm building so it would be great if some of your uh, followers fancy also coming over and having a look at what I do I definitely recommend checking out Ella's uh, YouTube channel she's got some great videos there talking about a lot of the things we, we spoke about today but in, in much more detail and yeah I just want to say thank you Ella for obviously for joining us today and for doing all that you're doing and really raising awareness about autism in girls and sharing your own experiences that, that I mean, I definitely have, have learned from them myself, uh, reading and, and following your stuff. And I know lots of other parents uh, of autistic children and people who are autistic themselves will definitely be finding a lot of value in, in what you do. So thank you for that. Brilliant. Thank you. And thanks 
uh, thank you too. I, I really enjoy uh, the work that you're doing. I think it's really refreshing. I think sometimes in the autism community, parents of autistic children can be um, less kind of neurodiverse friendly. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but it's, yeah. it's hard isn't it, sometimes um, having an autistic child and you manage to put such a positive spin on the difficulties that you face. And I think that's really, really great. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. So, yeah, final question. I just wanted to ask you, if there's one thing that you wanted the world to know about autism, what would it be? I think, having given this some thought, I would like the world to know that a large percentage, I'm not going to say all because I can't, of autistic people are anxious most of the time mm. in everything that we do. And if you can try and imagine what it feels like to feel anxious from the minute you wake up, through the day and to the minute you go to bed, I think it would be easier to have compassion for the ways that we behave sometimes. Is that an acceptable answer? That's a fantastic answer. So, yeah, if we can bear in mind the anxiety that people might be facing and be under and just be compassionate, it will help make a difference. Because because other people's stress, our own stress, makes the anxiety even worse. So just stay calm. Brilliant. Perfect. Well, thank you again, Ella. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you for inviting me to do this. Um, it's been great. Wow, what an episode. I don't know about you, but there's a few stories Ella, Ella told that definitely made me think about what life's like for Jude and Tommy and definitely gave me some ideas of maybe how I can make things a bit easier for them too. What did you think? As I said at the start, I'd love to get your feedback, so please send me a message uh, either on Facebook or Instagram or through my blog, Stories About Autism, and let me know what you thought of the episode. Remember, if you want to follow more of Ella's stories, and definitely I'd recommend going to watch some of her YouTube videos, you can find her as Purple Ella all over Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Next week, I'm going to be talking to Chris Bonello from the blog Autistic Not Weird. I'm really looking forward to that. So thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I'll speak to you soon.